Welcome to the Antler VC cast. Antler is a global early stage VC investing in the world's most exceptional people who are building the groundbreaking tech companies of tomorrow. I'm Pooja Barwani and together with UC Salavara, we host the Antler VC cast, a show dedicated to learning from the best in the global tech and VC ecosystem. In the series called Stories of Exceptional People, we speak to founders, entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in the tech and business world. We discuss building and scaling startups, unique investment approaches, tech trends, entrepreneurship mindsets, fundraising, and so much more. On the Antler VC cast today, we have with us Kevin Lin, the co-founder of Twitch, which is a leading live streaming platform and community for gamers. Kevin was Twitch's chief operating officer for 10 years from 2008 to 2018. And more recently, he was the chief culture, strategy and innovation officer. He is also an angel investor, lover of video games and says he enjoys watching bad movies. Cool. Uh, Great to have you. Why don't we go a bit to uh, the story of Kevin? Uh, Not everyone has uh, maybe heard that yet. And I think many, many people in our audience are founders or aspiring founders. So it's great to hear um, the origin story. So, um, you know, who's Kevin? How how did, uh, you know, things get started for you? And uh, maybe a few words on the early days of uh, Justin TV and Twitch. Sure. Oh, just one quick correction on the bio. I think of myself as an esports consultant. Consultant. I don't actually esports consult, but a lot of people ask me to consult them so that they can consult. It's kind of a funny ecosystem right now. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so I'm Kevin. I let's see. Grew up in New Orleans um, from Taiwanese immigrants. Uh, played a lot of video games as a kid. Um, I guess that's I guess that's later realized part of my life story um, that eventually influenced. I think directionally where we went, I mean, we all kind of played video games together in the office in the early days. Um, but yeah, so I meandered through uh, Louisiana. I went to boarding school in Northwestern Louisiana and ended up going to Yale for undergrad, studying ecology and evolutionary biology, was going to be a veterinarian, um, moved to New York. I told my parents I was going there to get my volunteer hours at a veterinary hospital. Turns out I wasn't able to because I didn't apply early enough. Um, so I just did some odd jobs there, did event planning, Worked for the city for the uh, what they called NYCN company, which was a convention and visitors bureau. Got to work on the NYC 2012 Olympic bid, which was kind of fun, although it was pretty doomed to, to, to start as a pitch. And then eventually, um, I ended up in San Francisco because my brother, my brother's friend, joined a beverage company called Adina, which was based in SF. They wanted to set up sales and uh, operations in Boston. Uh, my brother knew I was sort of in a dead end job, not doing anything really with my life. And he was like, why don't you just go work for this random startup that I know? And I was like, sure. So I started t- commuting from New York to Boston four days a week. Then eventually that company, the CEO, Greg Stelton Pohl said, Hey, why don't you come out to San Francisco, meet the team for a couple of weeks and you can go back and keep doing work for us in Boston. Came out to San Francisco, um, late 20, 2005. And then Greg was like, you know, you should just, just move out here. And I was like, okay, sure. I've really got not much else to do. So I actually moved to SF, not for tech, but for beverage startup. And then eventually my friends from college, Michael Seibel, Justin Kahn, um, and Emmett Shear. I actually don't, didn't know Emmett at the time. And he, Emmett eventually became CEO of Twitch uh, and, and my co-founder. Um, uh, they drove across the country after selling their last company on eBay. And then we kind of linked up and they said, hey, we're going to start streaming Justin's Life 24-7 on the internet. 
I was just like, I don't, is that, I'm not sure about that guys. And anyway, I kept in touch with them. They ended up getting like a sponsor and I like, they came to my warehouse to pick up an energy drink from my warehouse that they was sponsoring their live show, Justin's show. And then, uh, one day, 2008 joined after, you know, my customer asked me to help them out with some modeling, just do some research on how internet companies work. I knew nothing at the time, absolutely nothing. And, uh, one day they asked me to join them over fried chicken and thought about it for like a day. And I was like, sure. I mean, I work in a warehouse. I was working for this beverage company, delivering beverages, like driving trucks and forklifts, which was super fun, very not fulfilling, but pretty fun. Got to eat at a lot of restaurants for free. Um, knew the ins and outs of grocery stores. Uh, and then, yeah. So just joined 2008, April. Um, Justin wasn't really streaming anymore. They had opened up the platform for anyone to use. Anyone could stream anything from anywhere around the world. And yeah, then we took it from there. And I want to ask you about your, this whole thing about video games. You know, you mentioned this in your farewell letter that, you know, you, you got this uh, Nintendo from your parents and that was a really like a pivotal moment when you discovered this whole new world. Can you talk about how, you know, that changed your perspective and then, and then led up to so many things? I mean, you clearly had quite a journey to reach where you did, whether it was in Justin TV and then Twitch and this whole, how, how was video games? How did it start this journey and how has it been with you? Yeah. I mean, the Famicom. So my, I, I got it. My parents bought it from Taiwan and it, it, it's called the family computer, Famicom for short. And what was remarkable about it is a Nintendo device. Um, but the cartridges you could get, I don't know if, you know, this is not necessarily the right thing, but you could get these cartridges that had like 128, all the way to like 1,024 games on them. Most of them were not really unique games. Like they were different versions of the same game, like slightly hacked versions of the game. Anyway, my friends would come over and play with me. And, you know, they had Nintendo. I eventually got a Nintendo uh, and then a Super Nintendo. Um, and But that was how we, I bonded with friends. Like, I, we'd go to each other's houses and we'd play video games. Um, my, my, like, one of my closest friends, Billy Lou, growing up, John Bogran. Like, we would just go to, go over and play. And uh, Mega Man was, was huge. We played a lot of Zelda. We mostly, it was most, a lot of single-player games back then, right? And so we would just sit there and watch each other play, not realizing that's what we were doing. And I won't say like that, that wasn't something we kind of realized as we were developing Twitch. We certainly didn't necessarily pitch it in the most effective way of like, hey, there's a whole generation of kids that grew up like inadvertently watching their friends play video games. We didn't really say it that way, but although we kind of tried to say it that way, but that's in fact what happened. And so it just, video games became a centerpiece of my, my life, again, without even really being like i'm a gamer back then it wasn't like something you celebrated it wasn't cool right you go to school most people are playing sports or doing other things after class like i'd play magic cards at school and then i'd go home and play video games um and that's how i would bond with my friends and there wasn't multiplayer it wasn't online back then really right it's all very much you know at home on console there's some you know and i played a little a few pc games like one of my eventually when you know when we got a computer my my cousins in texas gave me bootleg copies of like random mostly text-based games like well and eventually some graphical gra graphics games um played a lot of like willie beamish and monkey island and myth and and, and mist sorry and, and games like that over time right on the pc but really the console was kind of my my centerpiece of what was gaming um but it was a gathering right you gather together and play or we go to the bowling alley and we play at the arcade machines or we go to the we had a place called fun arcade and we play there uh, but all the while you're kind of watching and that was, I think, this latent habit that people had that we tapped into. Oh, wow. I, I remember, uh, so 
such a nostalgia trip listening to you. Uh, I remember going to Japan in 95 and, and the games were completely different from what we had back home in Finland. And uh, I like hoarded the games and uh, yeah, pretty much couldn't then play them at home for incompatibility issues and all that. So it wasn't, wasn't really so much fun, but uh, my, my friend had a, had a PC and I was constantly watching him play. Um, it's a shame I didn't have the idea to, uh, start building Twitch though. <laughs> Not too late to become a streamer though. That, exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure people will be super excited about watching me, me stream, but, um, just, uh, fast forward, uh, a bunch of years, I think. You're now retired. Semi-retired, yeah. Is that a fair way to I, I just decided to start doing stuff. Well, I, I gave myself till February 1 to just completely do nothing. I mean, I was, I was helping get my parents settled in here in Taipei and just meeting some new people and, you know, catching up on almost a year's worth of quarantine, right? Just get out and do stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm starting to try to figure out what to do now. Right, right, right. So what, what led to the decision to leave twitch and and why now or i guess it was a uh, you know six months back roughly yeah a couple a couple months ago i mean I, it was it was a long journey you know so 12 and a half years working on the same thing and i love twitch i think it's still such a great community it's such a cool product and such an interesting and different you know internet experience i i feel like there is a lot more connection and empathy and all these things that you don't necessarily get from other types of digital slash social media. So I still love it as a product. Um, but I think I just need to do something new. You know, I think it was, it was a, it was a long time. It's an amazing team. I just needed something new. I think I'm just more of a small company person than a big company person too. That's a big part of it. Um, I just like smaller teams of people that just kind of, as they say, move fast and break things. Um, and I miss being on the ground. I missed meeting the creators and talking to them and like trying to figure out what everyone is thinking about and turning that into, you know, stuff that the product teams and engineering teams can process into something that they actually want from a tangible product standpoint. And it just wasn't getting as much of that, you know? Um, but it wasn't, you know, it, it was a hard, a very, very hard decision. I mean, it, it was a while I was thinking about it for such a long time. Like, what do I, I could stay forever. You know, it's the type of company I could stay forever, um, for sure. And I really believe in it. I really believe that it is net positive for the world. And, but yeah, I just needed something, I needed something different, different pace and different, 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 yeah, different environment. I think I was just craving some change. You might not want to answer this question, but maybe you do. Like, did something, did something change after the uh, acquisition by Amazon and, and like being part of a bigger system or? Yeah. I mean, it's everything you kind of hear about and read about and your friends warn you about, you know, it's like, it's different. There's no question. It's a bigger company. There's more things to, there's more context to build all the time. Um, you run into other departments doing similar things and that's not always negative. And I think big companies, you know, well run oftentimes let different teams take the same problem and take different approaches and different solutions to it. So it's okay. I think it honestly, you know, it's just these big company politics that kind of get you down. Frankly, there's a lot of that. So bu bureaucracy, like those You'd say identity, the startup culture, so to speak, is 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 lost when it becomes. It's completely different, yes. And so, I you know I've experienced it before. You know, working for the New York City government and working for you know other even the even 
even the dean of the small company I worked for had a huge amount of politics despite being less than 30 people. It was kind of crazy. And so Twitch, I think we just, we just, you know, it was this crazy, it was, it was such a wild ride with people that generally just trusted each other and challenged each other and yelled at each other and hated each other, but only temporarily. And then they just, you hold hands and go. And in big companies, that just doesn't happen as often, right? There's a lot of people who do try to push you down and, and tell you that they know better. And it's fine. It's weird talking about it because I'm like, who cares? Just deal with it, right? But it does get to you, especially when we were so, we were pretty young, right? When we got bought and naive as a team. And, you know, were we good at process? It was functional. We pushed product to, you know, and we, we got deals done. We were growing quickly. We were making revenue. And so we were doing these things, but we, we have like really good, traditional process not really and so when someone else comes in and is like wait you guys are a mess like we're like oh my god we're a mess you know you start to believe people when really it's like it works for us it may not work for someone else and so i think that's this great that was my one of my major lessons learned is sort of looking back maybe we shouldn't have adopted so many of their processes right and just sort of slowly iterated on our own to get to somewhere that's some semblance of there. So there's mutual understanding versus just being like, okay, now we're going to write six pages every, every week, you know, for every project. Like maybe we shouldn't have done that. I don't know. I'm not sure. So, so be very clear about your culture and say no, actually is, is your advice when, you know, when these bigger companies come in and the identity and processes get questioned. Yeah. I think, I think it's that, I think it's like, uh, you know, it's say no and, but still think about it and, and adapt where, where necessary. When you realize, huh, this is actually fundamentally better. Let's slowly, let's slowly change our process to match or change our culture a little bit to match. You don't have to do that, but it's not like you should be completely closed off to the idea. Right. And on the flip side, if you're the receiving entity, you know, the the acquisition company, I think it's make sure that people that are interfacing with them and quote unquote, integrating those teams also sensitive to that. And, you know, it just, you get unlucky sometimes where people have ulterior motives and personal motives versus company motives. And so I think we ran into that and just didn't, frankly, we just didn't navigate it very well. Obviously, like, you know, Twitch is a massive success story and uh, everything's been going quite well. But do you regret selling that early or do you think, I mean, you know... Yes and no, of course, right? Like in a in a sense, yes. Of like, oh, was there a few? Was there was certainly potential we could have tapped more into from a you know everything from a personal sanity and keeping the company private standpoint type of thing, but also financial freedom of selling. So I think it's it's tough. I try not to think about it too much. Yeah, it doesn't help to second guess. I think it's we would have. The... Yeah, but I and you know the the sad reality too for us is yeah, it was not easy for us to raise money even in, even as we were on this huge growth swing for our Series B and Series C. It was tough. A lot of people still didn't believe that it was going to last. I think a lot of people thought it was a fad or something like that. That's amazing in the day of like Clubhouse and seeing uh, what's happening. Oh right my now. god! I know. If only. We started it last year. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about timing, right? No, so so this whole unique thing about, you know, gaming and what has happened to it and the subcultures and communities, I think that's a big thing of these platforms, right? So what would you say is, you know, unique about gamers, you know, through platforms like Twitch? Unique about gamers. I, I think, well, let's see. I think there's this, well, huh. What's unique about gamers on Twitch? I mean, I think it's actually just on, 
it's revealing that gamers are just as social, right? That's sort of this like social stigma of people, all gamers are lonely in basement. That's like old. And we know now that it's cool and people don't do that. But like a big thing we were fighting against was exactly that social sentiment was that gamers were solitary, lonely creatures that just kind of did their own thing. It's just completely not true. And you get to, you know, gaming, there's all these studies about how gaming teaches you things like empathy, like how to storytell, like how to manage a team. There's all these studies about World of Warcraft in particular, about how managing a guild is like managing a team at a company or anything else, any other organization. So there's all this stuff you can learn. And You'll see it by watching Twitch. Like these creators, the ones that are super good at engaging their audience are sort of managing a like a benevolent mob, right? They are getting them to do things and play together and like type things into chat so that they can interact with them. Like there is this like sense of order actually in what looks like complete chaos inside of a Twitch chat room. It's a lot of chaos too, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it that we're just like everybody else gamers. We just happen to like playing games too, in addition to all the other stuff we like to do. And so is there a difference? Yeah, I think people I think people that play games are slightly different. They in it's a it's an interactive medium that if you don't appreciate and you never touched, it's like a little bit of a different you miss this, in my opinion, you're kinda of not missing, but like you're you don't ever get to experience this way of connecting with someone that games brings you. Yeah, and I think I think people, gamers also have a sense of feeling safer in that virtual environment than when you talk about the social aspect. Some of them are actually quite introverted offline. And I, I personally found I had to play Fortnite because my son is a big fan and he told me, please play it. I have to say it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And <laughs> you picked that, a I'm pretty like, okay, difficult you know, game to play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it really takes skill. And I said, I really need to like, you know, that's one thing I realized. I said, there's clearly a skill that I need to learn. And uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm very far from it. Yeah. It's, it's, it takes, you, you know, like any other mastery, it takes a really long time. Fortnite though. I mean, as far as shooters go, it could be fine to pick up. The building part makes it just, it, it, you know, just a whole next level of complexity. It's, 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 it's crazy. I started playing recently uh, with my two boys, right? So um, I think in the first 10 matches, we, got, we were playing trio, so team of three. And I think we got uh, six victory royales, meaning like we beat like 97 other people or whatever. But then I realized it was somehow like ranking us as a team based on my newbie level of level one, two, and three. And my sons are awesome at it. So like, we're just uh, beating a bunch of newbies. And, and then like, I hadn't realized how many levels there's to it because now I feel like I'm okay, but I can't build. So like then I'm <laughs> such a difficult game. Like, like you said, it's funny. I, I was just talking to someone about this actually today about how, they realize like when they actually, so they connect with their friends back in back home uh, through video games. And they find that those conversations are quite different than when they're not playing video games because their mind tends to wander off when, without it. And, you know, I think in this day and age, especially with like the overloading of video conferencing and, you know, and so on and in the COVID world, um, 
if you call your friends, you tend to see, you know, like you're picking up your phone, you're kind of scrolling through something, you're scrolling through Reddit or Twitter. Whereas when you sit and play games, you're sort of doing this intentional activity that is frankly kind of distracting your eyeballs and allowing your brain to focus on the conversation as well. It's kind of weird. And I, yeah, totally. I actually feel like I talk about way more interesting and like personal stuff with my friends when I'm playing games with them than when I'm just like sitting on the couch talking until I'm on the phone. Um, so I think there's just like sense of like, comfort too that it brings to life so it's community but as well as i guess the gamification of the way you interact yeah there's a shared purpose right when you're playing a game together or com or competition when you're playing against obviously exactly uh, what's your go-to game now i've been playing kind of like uh, i've been playing a lot of boomer apm games like i said i just i i don't have a pc here in taiwan so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to get one. I just have my MacBook and my phone. So I've been playing mostly Switch games and mobile games. On Switch, I was playing Hades. Um, super grindy game, but it's awesome. And then um, uh, Teamfight Tactics on uh, mobile, which is a cross-platform game. But it's a Riot, Riot Tactics game, sort of a match-three card game mixed with a tactics game. Super good. We uh, I actually sorry one final question related to games not the same though we I think we we met at a poker table the first time we ever met you still play I have not played poker in a while actually I distinctly remember beating you though I, I have a completely <laughs> different recollection I don't know what you're talking about hazy night that one okay cool uh, sorry now we we jumped over the Twitch years and I to bring this back a bit to the sort of world of startups and investing and all that, like um, what would kind of be your top three advice pieces of advice you'd like to give to aspiring founders? I mean, you've also worked with Y Combinator as a visiting partner. So you worked with a lot of uh, super early stage founders. So are there like any like key lessons you want to share here? Yeah. I mean, I think, there's a lot. I think the biggest ones, though, biggest one is just be transparent to yourself, to your team, to your investors, to anyone mentoring you. I think I find a lot of founders just want to make it work. And so they look at things that seem like it's working, look at this, the right stats that are going up, even though the key ones, the actual ones that matter are not. And so just being honest with yourself and everyone around you, I think that's the key. And then part of that and, and, and sort of the next stage of that is finding those people who can mentor you finding great set of mentors that you can be open and honest with that will give you good raw honest feedback in return um and then it's just like i don't know there's so many different ways of saying it right build 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 build, build and break and 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 you know experiment to decide is how we described it at twitch so just try, just give it a whirl, you know, don't, don't overthink things in the early days. Just, you have to just push product out. Um, and then obviously the biggest thing is talk to your customers, actually talk to them and learn how to not bias your conversations with customers. Um, there's a lot of books out there, none of which I've read. I think a lot of it's just practice. And the mom test is the one I think a lot of people recommend. And it's really a hard skill to learn. I find I'll listen to, I'll literally like just be a fly on the wall for a bunch of founder calls with customers. And I'm like, okay, here's where you're guiding the customer to the answer you want. You can't, obviously you can't do that. And you'll, you'll, you are also not your own customer as much as you think, Oh, I would totally use it this way. You're not, you, you, you know, too much, way too much about your own product and the problem you're solving to know if you're going in the right direction. So it's just being again, same, same, same as the first thing, be honest with yourself on that feedback, learn how to ask good questions and then watch your money. 
uh, most companies die from suicide, right? Not homicide. Don't over, don't over fret about competitors because chances are you'll destroy your own company from within versus somebody else eating your lunch. So mind the shop. And when you're building, when you talk about, you know, speaking to your customer, it's not that easy now to get access, especially if you're an early stage, given the way the world is. What advice would you give to founders who are building purely online and remotely in making sure that they get the right uh, information and data that they require to build their product from their customer? Yeah, I mean, getting customer feedback, I find actually so, you know, um, working with founders over the last year, I get mixed feel. I get mixed signals. So, in, in, but I think I think it errs on the side of people have been able to get more customer feedback than usual because people are more willing to quickly jump on a Zoom um, or a Discord chat or something like that. Um, and so, it's really persistence, right? It's like you, if you, there's a certain type of customer you really, really need feedback. You just have to be really persistent about it um, and schedule the time. Be really structured in your interviews. Be really structured about data processing and, and with speed so that the next round you can sort of adapt as you go. Um, but it's all about persistence. I think there's a lot of folks that just give up. Oh, well, they didn't respond to me on Twitter DM or Instagram DM. Like, you just got to keep going. And you don't always need to attack the same person. The other big part of it, too, is there's a particular type of customer you're looking for. Just ask friends to help. Ask your mentors to help. Ask your network to help. People, warm intros go a long, long way. And I find a lot of folks, it's weird. It's like so many things seem so obvious, right? But then I, I find telling particularly young founders, like they don't think about it or they don't think they don't think to push through. Like, oh, we tried. We reached out to 100 people through DM and it didn't work. So, oh, we'll just move on to something else, some other problem. It's like, no, you don't. You have to actually keep that. You have to super try. So that is a little bit the harder, the the, the thing missing in the COVID, in, in COVID world is, you know, events. You can't just go to an event, randomly walk up to people and talk to people. That makes it much harder. So you kind of have to do some deliberate networking as well through other, you know, people do design these online events. A lot of cool products coming up too um, that I think are semi-metaverses sort of where you can have these random collisions and you can ask people stuff. But you just need to be much more deliberate about your first, you know, let's say first degree network and asking your first degree network to help you with intros to their friends and other friends and, you know, get, get feedback that way. It's just about staying organized and staying persistent about it. Don't be shy, basically. Don't be shy. <laughs> Any products you want to mention in that space? You mentioned a couple of cool products you've seen. Any shout outs? Oh, like, have you seen Gather Town? No. What? I really like this. It's it's kind of like a top-down, it almost looks like Pokemon, like an old Pokemon game, retro 8-bit top-down um, like platformer type. And uh, as you approach other characters on the board, they pop up on your screen in a video and then you can hear them. And so you can like, for example, recreate your office space and like everyone's plopped in there as a little character and you can like walk over to the, you know, the copy machine. And if someone else happens to be there, you can talk to them and blah, blah, blah. And then they have these other like worlds where there's, you know, games. So you can walk up to the poker table, you can walk up to the DJ booth and listen to music with other people. But you're, you're, it's like a video conferencing tool wrapped in almost this like in this in Disneyland. We are officially yes. adopting that at Amsterdam. It's super cool. Yeah. Zoom. Tomorrow. That's frigging there's awesome. A, yeah, there's a bunch of these. There's another one called Sophia with a Y. S-O-P-H-Y-A. Okay. Got to check it out. And then there's another one called Spatial Chat. Yeah, there's a bunch of these now. So it's, it's <laughs> they're all kind of neat in their own way. Mm. 
That's awesome. I want to pick up a bit on transparency. You mentioned that one, and uh, it's not necessarily the one that always gets thrown out there when when you ask this type of a question. But what I want to ask is like, how do you create that culture in the early going? in your team when you get your first hires it can be a bit difficult to but get transparent feedback from from people underneath you etc uh, but also with co-founders so any kind of views or advice on how to create that type of dynamic because quite often it's like you know if you just happen to have the right type of personality next to you then you they'll be transparent because they are transparent but then not not everyone is transparent by nature so how do you kind of create that culture of of everyone being transparent without any fear of like retribution or sort of like oh so many thoughts here i i mean i think we were really lucky that justin michael kyle emmett were always just so open i mean we would end up in meeting rooms yelling at one another for so long or sometimes one-on-one founders would yell at each other like and it wasn't a big office and there was certainly no soundproofing so people kind of hear all these altercations and then staff would kind of look like oh man it's like is somebody going to leave? Are they like, it sounds pretty bad, but the second those arguments are over, it's like, it's done. And the decision was made or like next step at least was, was decided and everything's cool. And so I think just people seeing that and, and, and actually the constant, like, tell tell us what you think. Like, don't, don't just say yes. Or don't just like roll your eyes at something, like explain to us how you're feeling. And it was spending a lot of time doing that. And so on the one hand, it's sort of this outward transparency of like, Hey, like, here's what we're thinking about. We have no idea what we're doing, but we're just, I think we should just go in this direction. Let's just try it. And then we debate, 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 and then make a decision and go, right? We call that commitment, commitment, not compliance. Amazon's got, uh, describes it, disagree and commit, right? And so sort of just this like, but we were open and, and we were very conversational and we like, liked encouraging healthy debate. And so, and it frustrated some people. Some people don't like that, right? Some people are just like, just tell me what to do. Some people are like, no, you're always wrong. Right. So you kind of have to find these balances all, all, all along the way. But I think the way we communicated the transparency a lot was in, in action. Right. So one simple example is every Friday at the team meeting from the beginning of time, we talked about everything from what we were worried about to mistakes that we made to how much money we had in the bank and how many months we had left of runway before everyone was going to be unemployed. Right. And so like all everything was open, really. Everything was out in the open. And and so that obviously had to change over time as we got bigger, particularly after acquisition. But it was little things like that that I think encourage people to to that oh, okay, it's okay to feel insecure. It's okay to not know what you're doing. And it's better to talk about it than not. We'd be more upset with you if you didn't talk to us about something that you were either concerned about or upset about or had questions on. Like we'd rather you just talk to us. Um we did a lot of like over uh, like reviews of the company, so to speak. So um, once every three months or so, I'd make sure to take everyone at the company out for a quick walk or a coffee for 15 to 30 minutes and just say, hey, like what's going on? What's on your mind? Like what's good? What's bad? Process all that and try to change as fast as possible whatever we perceived then that the company was sort of feeling as an organism was not good. And we talk about it. We mention it to the team. We try to make the change as fast as possible. Um, but in general, I think we... We're also very lucky in that we hired very deliberately. So if any, we had six people on a panel on average. And if anyone was a no, it was a no. You you could debate and try to convince that person that was a no, that maybe there was something that they missed. And if that's the case, then they go interview them again. And a couple of other people would, would, would not necessarily interview them, but meet with them or talk to them briefly. And then we sort of do that routine. But generally, 
if there was one person that's kind of like, eh, not so sure if I would want to work with this person, it was a no. And so that was painful. So everyone had veto powers. Everyone, everyone basically had veto powers. Yes. In the early days. Later on, as we get bigger, you know, you start to make some exceptions. Unfortunately, you know, that, that's not unfortunate, I think, actually. But uh, sometimes you just have to sacrifice that for speed. Um, but generally, yes, where everyone that made it into the company was, you know, all, all, all yeses. That's a very interesting policy. Should consider that one as well. I think the the fight openly and oh, not violently, but very openly, and then somehow leave it all behind when the door to the meeting room closes. I, I think that's very important. I especially with one of my co-founders, shout out to Vegard. We we have that type of relationship where we have like super heated debates. And uh, last week <laughs> had one of those. And then started, at one point I realized that there's seven other people in the call and they're just listening to us go at it. And then I, and then I felt the compelled to say, I love you, man. But so that everyone knows it's all okay. You know, it's all okay. This, uh, <laughs> this is how we normally talk. Like it's fine. We just get sharing ideas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Totally. But you know, that, that really helped, right? That really does set the tenor for what you want the culture to be like. People, it's, you know, found the, the hard part is founders can reconcile quickly, generally, and employees have to be a little bit more careful, right? If they start to feel that, oh, I can just sort of yell at someone that not everyone responds well to that. So that's also a fine line you have to be really careful about. And that, that's a lot of just consistency and, and describing, you know, What's going on? Yeah, no, exactly. And I, uh, you know, probably in hindsight would rather do uh, that in private. Sometimes you get uh, <laughs> a bit, a bit heated. And luckily in Zoom, you know, on Zoom, you don't hear things through the walls, right? So. Okay. And I know it's, it's just been recent, but what's your favorite retirement activity? Oh, I mean, apparently I just like going out and eating and drinking a lot. Um, I think that was part of the pent up, like not doing anything for nine months in quarantine in San Francisco. But oh, I started playing badminton. Badminton is tough and it's pretty fun. But I really ping pong. Ping pong is a thing I'm looking forward to. Everyone I've talked to here is like, oh, I'm pretty good at ping pong. I'm like, okay, guys, like everyone says they're pretty good at ping pong. So let's go play some ping pong. But no, it's actually, honestly, it's just been fun hanging out with my parents. Just like hanging out, chilling, talking about random stuff, like eating some random food. Um, and just sort of seeing them feel more comfortable, you know, it's been really, really nice during, during, during uh, Taiwan time. I thought I would play more video games, actually. I'm somewhat surprised that I'm not playing more video games. So with that, um, thank you so much for your advice and this amazing conversation and taking your time, taking time out of your retirement. Thank you. No, this is super fun. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love what y'all do. So I'm always happy to help. And yeah, stay safe and sane out there. You have been listening to the Antla BC cast with me, Pooja Barwani and Yusi Salovara. Antler is a global VC firm headquartered in Singapore with 14 locations globally, and we are growing. To learn more about Antler, our portfolio companies, and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening. <laughs>